Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Luke chapter 17, beginning in the 11th verse. And it came to pass, as Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. One of the rich traditions that we enjoy here in America is the observance of a national holiday each year known as Thanksgiving Day. For a secular nation to have a holiday devoted to giving thanks to God is a very unique development in human history. We are signally blessed and richly honored in this country to have had leaders in the past who determined it is appropriate for us to reflect on the goodness of God and to give Him thanks, to celebrate the rich blessings He's given us. This American tradition dates back, you may know, to the bitter struggle of the original settlers of the New World. When the Pilgrims came to America in 1620, the first year they had their numbers reduced by over 50%. That is, well over one half of those who braved the waters of the Atlantic to come to the New World died that first year during that bitterly cold winter. We died from disease, starvation, and the hardships of exposure to the elements. Instead of being themselves bitter over their losses and hardships and the many heartaches that they had endured, they were thankful to God for His gracious providence in their lives. It's really surprising, isn't it, that Thanksgiving had its origin in the story of people who had lost so much, but yet could see God's goodness in what remained. The Thanksgiving tradition was recovered 250 years later when, in 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued a national proclamation urging the nation to pause on this day to reflect again on the goodness and to celebrate the mercy of God, even though the nation was at that very moment embroiled in the middle of a bitter civil war. Instead of complaining, instead of allowing themselves to become angry and to lose heart and to hate their neighbor, he encouraged Americans to stop and reflect on truly how good God had been to them. Again, my friends, it surprises us that our tradition of thanksgiving is rooted in such adversity. You and I today are once again involved and facing times of 
challenge and adversity. This has been a very challenging year, and particularly the last month or so has been very difficult. We don't know what the future holds, and perhaps, my friends, as we think about the need to survive and what the future might hold, we wonder, how can I face tomorrow and be thankful? But if the pilgrims in 1621 could pause to give thanks, and if the nation under Lincoln's leadership could pause to reflect on the goodness of God in the midst of a bitter civil war, it is very appropriate that you and I, as well, this morning, tender our hearts and think about how good the Lord's been to us in our lives, how easy we've had it. You see, America has been uniquely blessed. Our church has been uniquely blessed. Our families have been abundantly favored by God. In fact, in a very real sense, you and I live better than kings. A magazine some years back wrote these words, most of us are far healthier, we're far more comfortable, and we have far more opportunities and diversions available to us than 99% of all the monarchs and emperors who have ever lived. We live longer, eat better, and travel farther than the richest and most blessed people in virtually every other generation in every land in history. Yet it seems, my beloved, that modern man is better at grumbling than gratitude. He's better at whining than worshiping. He's better at complaining than contentment. The sin of ingratitude, I believe, is one of the great scandals of our day. In the first chapter of the Roman letter, the apostle describes an apostate society and the wrath of God upon that society. The picture of Romans chapter 1 is that God has made himself known as the great benefactor of humanity. He's signed the artistry of creation with his indelible imprint. He's blessed us with riches untold. But yet in the midst of all of the evidences of God's existence and his goodness, it says when they knew God, yet they refused to glorify him as God. Neither were they thankful. Yes, the murmuring Israelite problem continues to this very day, doesn't it? As we reflect on all that is wrong and we miss, for some reason, all that is right and all that the Lord has done for us. That's why this story that I've read in your hearing this morning in the 17th chapter of Luke is so appropriate, I believe, to where you and I live today. It's the story of the grateful leper who returned to give thanks to Jesus for the gift of cleansing. I want you to notice, first of all, in our narrative this morning, a dreaded disease. Verse 12 says, as Jesus entered into a certain village, now he's making his way to Jerusalem from Capernaum or Nazareth, his hometown. He's going south and he must travel through Galilee and Samaria. And we're not told exactly where, but as he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, he entered into a certain village. And as he passed through this certain village, it says there met him in that village ten men that were lepers which stood afar off. They met him, but they kept their distance. And they were separated not by six feet, but by 100 paces at least. The law required lepers to stay at least 100 paces away from anyone else in the community. Because leprosy was a dreaded disease. It was highly infectious. If I were to ask this morning what your favorite book in the Bible is, 
I'm sure some of you would probably say my favorite book in the Bible is the Gospel of John. Others may say it's the book of Romans or Ephesians. And I'm sure a number would say my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. But I wonder if anybody would volunteer to say my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Leviticus. <laughs> I seriously doubt that anyone would claim that as their favorite book. In fact, when you start trying to read through the Bible in the beginning of the year, most of us do pretty well through Genesis because it's full of drama. And then we do pretty well through Exodus because it's the story of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and beginning their journey through the wilderness. But when we get to Leviticus, with its very elaborate rituals, its very detailed instructions on how to craft various utensils and items of furniture that were to be used in the service of the tabernacle, its dietary laws and restrictions, and page upon page of how the priests were to clothe themselves in various parts of their ceremonial service. You say, Brother Mike, it's just too detailed. I've got too much to do. Sorry, but my time has run out and I can't sustain focus on it. It's far too complex. One lesson we should draw from these complex passages in the Bible is that we serve a precise God who cares about the details. It does matter how we do things, how we live our lives, how we worship. We learn that much at least. But somebody says Leviticus is just too difficult for me. And if you can get through the rest of it, when you reach Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, many people check out because there you have page upon page of instructions concerning how to diagnose and deal with a very dreaded problem in that day called leprosy. Now, leprosy was the cancer of the ancient world. Just as someone dreads the diagnosis from the doctor that you have cancer, we hesitate to even speak the word. Even so, to hear that you have leprosy in that day was a virtual death sentence. Because you see, leprosy was highly contagious. It meant that you couldn't be around your family or friends anymore. If you were diagnosed with leprosy, if a rash broke out on your skin, and you went to start to research what was happening, and you read the law, Leviticus 13 and 14, and if it was this color, and you bathed, and it didn't go away, but it grew and began to ulcerate, and it began to spread, and you finally said, well, it's time for me to go to the priest. And the priest quarantined you for seven days, and then you came back and it was spread further and it had certain appearance to it. He would then give you the verdict that you were a leper. That meant that you could not go back home. You couldn't go pack your bags. You couldn't kiss your wife goodbye. You could not tell your children goodbye, but immediately you were quarantined. Now, they didn't quarantine in that day the entire community, but they quarantined those that were sick. And the lepers lived either by themselves or they lived in a community, a colony, a leper colony, with other lepers, but they could not interact with the public because it was such an infectious disease. It was spread primarily through contact and it was spread through breathing or in a respiratory way. And when a person contracted leprosy, it meant that their nerve endings began to malfunction. They lost feeling just as blindness impaired a person's vision, they lost sight, and deafness impaired their hearing, they lost the sense of hearing, so leprosy impeded the sense of touch or feeling. 
A leper may slice a vegetable and accidentally slice a digit off of his hand and not even know it. He could not feel. And of course, you can understand how dangerous that would be. Lepers were tremendously disfigured. This contagious disease resulted in separation. It disfigured its victims. It desensitized the sense of touch. And it was incurable. There was no medicine. There was no therapy. There was no surgery. There was no hope for improvement. Once you were diagnosed with leprosy, it was a virtual death sentence. And you may live 30 years in this decaying, rotting state. There was really no hope outside of a miracle. You can never see your wife again, your family again. The embrace, the familiarity of home, the engagement in society, the opportunity to worship at the temple or the tabernacle was over. It was a dreaded malady. I want you to notice in verse 13, a daring request. And they lifted up their voices. Now, there's something about Jesus that has preceded him. The news of his mercy to lepers. You know, one of the characteristics of his ministry, as you learn in the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, was that he not only gave sight to the blind and unstopped the ears of the deaf, but he cleansed the lepers. Several times already in Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus encountered lepers. For instance, in the fifth chapter, he encountered a man that was a leper and he touched the leper. The leper had said, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I have always loved that prayer. As the leper says to Jesus, Lord, I know you're able, if you're just willing. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. You're able, you can, if you're willing. And Jesus said, I will, be thou clean. And he touched the leper. And I've always thought that was significant because that man hadn't felt human touch in a long time. Suddenly his life is changed as he has this up-close encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the news that Jesus healed or cleansed lepers has preceded him. And as he entered into the certain village and these ten men stood at least 100 paces away, it says they lifted up their voices. And that simply means that they yelled out. They didn't whisper. Now, one of the problems of a leper was that it makes him completely hoarse and it just basically debilitates his ability to produce any volume. And these men, though, together mustered every ounce of energy that they could and in concert, they loudly cried out and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. I think it's significant that in the next chapter, Luke 18, where in Luke 17, you have the story of the publican and the Pharisee that went up to the temple to pray. And the publican's prayer is identical to the prayer of these ten lepers. Have mercy upon me. Now, mercy is compassion to those in misery. And I think we would agree that these lepers were in misery. And the publican who was convicted of his sin was in misery. And by the way, leprosy is one of the most striking types or figures of sin in all the Bible. Just like leprosy, my friends, sin is highly contagious. And sin separates us from God and from others. And sin disfigures our souls. And sin 
desensitizes a person so that they can no longer feel the things, their conscience is no longer tender like it once was. And sin is incurable by man. It is humanly incurable. It's a dreaded disease, isn't it? In fact, Isaiah chapter 1 describes man in sin in terms that resemble the diagnosis of leprosy when it says the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the top of the head to the sole of the feet, there is no soundness in them, but they are full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. The word putrefying means rotting. They were decaying. They were decomposing. They were living dead men. They were, they were wasting away. Leprosy, my friends, in the body or leprosy in the soul. Sin should give us reason to cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, they had heard, no doubt, that he had cleansed lepers. And this was their only hope. And as they cried out to him for mercy, it is a daring request. For they had no reason to think that they were worthy. They knew that they were lepers. They knew that they were outcasts. They knew that they were disadvantaged and marginalized from society. But yet they dared to believe that if there was any hope for them, Jesus was the only one who could help them. And I want to ask, have you ever come to the point in your life where you have realized that if there's any hope for a sinner like you, Jesus is the only one who can help you? I want you to notice now a miraculous cure. Verse 14, And when Jesus saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. Now that's a strange imperative. That's very surprising. You would expect Jesus to say, Okay, you're clean. But he tells them to go show themselves to the priests. Now they might have objected and said, Why should we go to the priest? Because he'll just tell us that we're still sick and we will be embarrassed all over again. I mean, why get our hopes up? But there's something, my friends, about what Jesus says that rings true in their hearts. Faith in them believes the Lord Jesus when he says, go show yourselves to the priest. And you see, he's basically saying you need to go get a fresh checkup. It's been a while since you've had your case analyzed. It's been a while since you've had a visit to uh, see if you still have the problem. Go show yourself to the priest. And of course, the only time that a leper was to go to the priest as if he thought he was clean because it was the priest who had consigned him to quarantine and it was the priest who could say that the disease has been miraculously cured and now you can rejoin society. So they had to show themselves to the priest in order to be pronounced clean. They're still lepers when Jesus tells them this, but it says, and it came to pass as they went, they were cleansed. I don't know exactly how that happened, but I can just imagine the ten of these men beginning to go toward the temple to find the priest. And on the, on the way, one of them says, look, my fingers are back. And another says, my ear is back. And another says, look, my skin is fresh and I'm not bent over anymore. And suddenly, one by one, they realize that they have been miraculously cured as they're going to the priest and they realize that the cure has been implemented, they know that it's just a few moments away before they can return to their families. And can't you imagine that these men going to the priest and saying, yep, yeah, you're, you're fine, you're okay. 
And you say, well, what standard did he have to go by? The law prescribed in detail how to diagnose the disease and how to tell if it had been cured and cleansed. And of course, they would probably have a few days yet of observation at the priest before they were released back into society. But I mean, they were just a week away at most from rejoining their families. And I can imagine the reunion day when the husband comes back home and walks through the door and his wife is there at the kitchen trying to prepare something for the little children. He says, honey, I'm home. And she can't believe her ears or her eyes. And he sweeps her up in his arms. And like that celebrated photo of the soldier at the end of World War II in New York City who grabbed the young lady and embraced her. So the man, no doubt, had a joyful reunion with his wife and then his children. He said, come. And he set them upon his lap and he hugged them and he kissed them and they laughed and celebrated and rejoiced together that their lives had been transformed by the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, what a happy day that would be to go back to synagogue, to church. If you've ever seen the movie Shenandoah starring Jimmy Stewart, you remember that final scene when the young boy who's gone away to war and they think that he's deceased. As the pastor mounts the pulpit to begin his sermon, suddenly the doors open and the young boy comes in on his crutch. And the crowd slowly turns to see who it is and suddenly the father realizes that his son is still alive. And he sits beside him and oh, my friends, what a joyful reunion it would be when the leper returned to church the next day of worship. Indeed, what a happy time this was. But I want you to notice one of the lepers in his haste to get back to his normal life realized that something needed to be done first. And in verse 15, we see an appropriate response. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice, he glorified God. That word loud gives us our word in the English megaphone with a loud voice. This cleansed leper screamed. He shouted. He maximized his volume. He was not afraid of who might hear. He was overcome with joy. He didn't worry about being embarrassed or being inappropriate. He could not restrain the emotion that he felt. His gratitude was boiling over it like a megaphone with a loud voice. He glorified God. And he fell at the feet of Jesus on his face, giving him thanks. He gave thanks. I suggest, my friends, that it doesn't merely say that he was thankful, but he gave thanks. Usually when I hear this story preached, the point is made that nine were not thankful, only one was thankful. And I don't know that we can charge such a thing to the other nine, that they were not, that they didn't feel gratitude, but they didn't give thanks. There's a difference in the attitude of thankfulness. Be thankful. You know, if someone does something that changes your life, if someone is unusually kind to you, then obviously uh, you feel gratitude. Anyone, 
I mean, it would take someone that was inhuman not to feel happy about something serendipitous that happened in his or her life. Something good happens, someone goes above and beyond the call of duty to help you or to do something, and you just feel gratitude. You feel it. That attitude of thankfulness should lead to the action of giving thanks. It's not enough, my friends, that we just feel thankful. Oh yes, I'm, I feel thankful. But we need to put it into action. That attitude needs to be activated and we need to have a thanksgiving. Not a thankful day, but a giving of thanks day. If you'll notice in the 100th Psalm in the fourth verse, that wonderful Psalm says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. So both the attitude be thankful, and the action, thanksgiving, are involved in worship. Now, you're here this morning to give thanks to God, but I hope that behind the giving, the action of giving thanks to God, there's also an attitude, a heart, that is truly grateful for what God has done for you. But on the other hand, dear friends, it's possible to have a heart, an attitude of thankfulness. I've, I've really been lucky in life. But we don't give thanks to the right source, you see. Somebody says, oh, I've been, I'm, I'm just really blessed. But are you showing it? Are you offering the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name? That's what Hebrews 13, 15 tells us to do. The point is, my beloved, I think our churches would be more full in this modern world if people were as interested in giving thanks as they are in being thankful. It's here that you give thanks. It's something verbal. It involves an action. It's something very practical to give thanks to God. But as you go through the motions of worship, giving thanks, may I say that it's appropriate for your heart to reflect on how good the Lord's been to you in the process. So all ten had prayed, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, but only one praised. Prayer and praise should go together in our lives. You say, I've been praying for something and it worked out. <laughs> wow, what a coincidence. No, praise should follow prayer. So if you're a person of prayer, be also a person of praise. Let those refuse to sing, as Isaac Watts says, who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king should speak his praise abroad. And this one who came back, you say, well, he must not have had a family. He must not have had a job that he wanted to return to. He must not have had any children or grandchildren or any reason to go back to synagogue. The point is that his spiritual life was a greater priority in his life, in his mind, than his natural life. Even above the gifts in nature was his debt that he felt that he owed to God. I wonder if any of you have ever been in debt. Uh, no, that's a rhetorical question. Probably every one of us has been in debt at some point in our lives, either to a greater or a lesser degree. Perhaps you are in debt right now. And you know what it feels like to be in debt. It's a cloud that hangs over your head and it just seems to permeate every waking moment and everything that you think and say and do. It just never escapes you. It's a great burden. My friends, this is a good debt to have, to be a debtor to mercy alone. Robert Robinson was a pastor in London 
as a 25-year-old young man, very gifted. His, the church that he pastored was growing and thriving, and his ministry, his preaching was popular, and, and he wrote hymns you know, for use at the conclusion of each Sunday worship. And on one particular Sunday, he wrote a hymn that went like this. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of grateful praise. The last verse of that hymn said this, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Lord, you've been so good to me. I tend to wander, I tend to stray, but Lord, may your goodness keep me close to you. May it bind my wandering heart to thee because I'm a debtor to grace. I'm a great debtor. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. My friends, I wonder if you can say that today. I'm in debt to God, and that's a debt that will never be repaid. 10,000 years in heaven will not be enough to praise him adequately for what he's done for you. Because he's cured you of the leprosy that's in your soul. That which no man could do. That which had spread to others so easily. That which had separated you from friends and family and loved ones and success. That which had disfigured your heart and that was incurable. Jesus Christ has pronounced you clean. And my beloved, how thankful we should be for that. And the one priority in our lives after that should be to return to give thanks. Not just to feel thankful. I think God has many children who have moments of gratitude, but yet to regularly say, Lord, I do want to once more say thank you. Once more, I want to bow myself at your feet like this leper did. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And then I want you to notice, dear friends, a surprising detail, probably the most surprising detail in this entire narrative. In verse 16b, and he was a Samaritan. Now, if you know anything about the Samaritans, you know that they were outcasts in ancient Israel. They were considered to be the riffraff of society. They were not pure-blooded Jews. And the ethnic tension between the Jews and the Samaritans was tremendous. One of the features of Luke's gospel, where we took our text this morning, is that this is the gospel of the poor and the underprivileged. Over and over again, one of Luke's habits is to focus on how Jesus dealt with those that were the marginalized in society. For instance, Luke talks about how Jesus showed favor to Gentiles. In chapter 4, you read about his first sermon that he preached, and one of the illustrations he used in that sermon was that how God had bypassed all of the lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha the prophet and he had cleansed Naaman the Syrian. He had cleansed a Gentile. And they were so upset at this display of the sovereignty of God that they wanted to cast Jesus over the brow of the hill. You see Luke highlights how Jesus favored and God favored the poor and the underprivileged. This is the gospel of women over and again, women are heroines in this book. Anna the prophetess in chapter 2, who took the babe Jesus up in her arms and began to speak of him to all them that were looking for consolation in Israel. 
the widow of Sidon in chapter 4 that he mentions that God in the days of Elijah the prophet had bypassed all of the widows in Israel and blessed a Sidonian widow. The profligate woman in Luke chapter 7 who was known to be a sinner who came in while Jesus sat at meat in Simon the Pharisee's house and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with the hairs of her head. The widow with the two mites that cast in more than all the wealthy people around her in chapter 21 of Luke. The publican in Luke 18 that went home to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. And then the blind beggar in Luke 18 that Jesus stopped to heal of his malady. The good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. You see how this is the gospel of the poor and the underprivileged. The good Samaritan, of course, helped the needy man when the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. And the ten lepers here. Now, a leper was already an outcast. A leper was already a pariah. A leper was already part of the marginalized of society, treated as invisible and unlovely by the rest. But this man is doubly disadvantaged. For the other nine that went to the priest, this one who returned, Jesus says, was not only a leper, but he was a Samaritan. One of the marginalized, the underprivileged, the outcasts of society. And he was the one who returned to give thanks. Just like the pilgrims in 1621, in spite of their heartaches and challenges, paused to reflect on the goodness of God. Just like America, embroiled in a bitter civil war in 1863, paused to reflect on the Lord. May I say you and I, dear friends, in 2020, in spite of the difficulties, the challenges, and the hardships of our lives, have every reason to return to give thanks to the Lord who has been so good to our leprous hearts. And not only that, but we're not worthy. We're Samaritans. We're outcasts. Yes, indeed, the Lord has blessed us so signally. Finally, I notice a searching question. Verse 17. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? You say, well, obviously they've gone home. Who can blame them? And that's, that's true. But yet, this one Samaritan is honored by Jesus because he returned. And there's the key word in the whole narrative. He returned to give glory to God. This stranger, this foreigner. Jesus says, where are the nine? My friends, where are all of God's children today? who have been so signally blessed, who have been so abundantly favored. Where are they? What, are they all in churches this morning? Or some on the water? Or some at work? Or some on the golf course? Or some taking an extra siesta because it's been a hard week? I understand. But yet, Jesus is worthy of our best esteem. Because He's done for us what no man could have possibly have done. You say, Brother Mike, I'm not sure I have that much to be thankful for today. Well, I heard a story about a man and his family. There were nine people in his family, and they were very poor. It was a very large family, very poor family, and they lived in a, in a single room. And I went to Africa on two occasions. I've known people who actually lived in a hut with a single room. Everything took place in that one room. Cooking, eating, sleeping family interaction, everything. It's a one-room home, desperately poor, beyond our imagination. And that was the case of this man and his family. They lived in one room, 
and the living conditions were unbearable. And the husband of the family came to a wise man, and he said, there are nine of us living in one room, and I can't stand it anymore. It's unbearable. What can I do? And the wise man said, uh, take your goat and move him into the room with you. And the man was incredulous. He said, uh, he began to object, but the rabbi said, do as I say, take your goat, move him into the room with your family and come back in one week. A week later, the man came back looking even more distraught than he had before. And he told the wise man, we can't stand it. It's just unbearable. I'm at my wit's end. The goat is filthy. And the wise man said to him, go home and let the goat out and then come back in a week. One week later, a beaming, radiant, joyful man returned, exclaiming, life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that there's no goat. Only the nine of us. You see, dear friends, the situation was the very same now as it was at the beginning. But now, his perspective had changed. He realized that he was blessed to begin with. He needed to be thankful. He needed to count his blessings for what he had right now. Where are the nine? Be thankful. And my friends, don't forget to give thanks. Be the grateful leper, even though 50% of your church membership is gone and you mourn over the past even though you're in the midst of a civil unrest and perhaps war pause to be thankful for God has been so good to you and to me God.
You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.